So turn with me to Mark chapter 8 as we continue our study in Mark. Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 26 this morning, just a short little section. Thought about lumping it in with the uh, the rest of the chapter, but the rest of the chapter is pretty heavy, so I wanted to just give this its own treatment and go from there. And so as we come to his word, let's now go to him in prayer and ask for his help and understanding. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your holy word, we come as a people who are not always holy. And we come as a people who usually have our own words to add. So Lord, we pray that you would help us because we are in desperate need of your help. When it comes to your word, we're in need of understanding. We need you to come alongside us even now and teach us. Be with us as we study your word. We want to know you. We want to know how we ought to be as believers so that the world might know that you are Lord and Savior. And we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So as I read this passage, one of the things that I thought about was the process in woodworking. And it is the last process that happens in any project, and that is the finishing process, where you apply some sort of finish, like paint or stain and polyurethane or whatever it is. So it reminded me of a time, of the, one of the first things that we ever got as a couple was we were given a brand new dresser, or like a chest of drawers, I guess. I don't really know the difference, but whatever. And it was right before Anna was born. And we were given this nice dresser and it was unfinished it was kind of one of these things that you put together or whatever and you finish it yourself so it was nice and so the idea of sanding and finishing were way too much for me to even regard it was just going to take too much time and so I was just ready to start filling it with like her little clothes she wasn't even born yet I barely even sanded it I put on one coat of this polyurethane or whatever and that was all I did we still have it Still only one coat of finish on it, and it looks like it only has one coat of finish on it. It's not bad. Could have looked a whole lot better than it does, though. Could look a whole lot better. Since then, because I've taken up woodworking as a hobby, I've learned the value of taking your time with this stage of the process. If you want something to look nice, you will apply multiple coats to it. With each coat, it looks better. You bring out the character of the wood. You protect it even better. That project is going to look its absolute best the more time that you spend finishing that project. So in our text today, Jesus meets a blind man, and he heals the blind man, which seems normal to us, at least in the reading of Mark, right? I mean, it's not a normal thing for one man to heal another man of blindness, but it is normal when you're reading through Mark, Jesus heals people. However, this healing is unlike any other that is in the New Testament because Jesus doesn't completely heal him on the first try or the first attempt. Even saying those words try and attempt sound weird when you're talking about the Creator. He gives him this second touch, and in that second touch, the man fully receives his sight. 
Now, it might be easy for the naysayers to say, see here, Jesus had trouble with some people. He wasn't completely able to heal this person. Maybe it was hard for him to. Honestly, there's lots of different things that people say about this text. Only a few of them make sense, of course. That's most biblical texts. But we'll get into some of those things. More importantly, we're going to learn how Jesus handles his own people in this. Not only the blind man who is receiving the healing, but his disciples who were witnessing that. Us who are witnessing as we read from the text this morning. As we minister to a lost world, most of the time we aren't going to get these fast and ready results that we would like. But instead it's going to take time. It's going to take lots of coats of finish, so to speak. Even as we look at our own lives, and I think this is more important than that. As we look at our own lives, we're going to see that same principle play out. We have to be careful here because we don't want to wander off into fantasy myth and legend when it comes to Jesus' second touch of this blind man. But there are some great principles for ministry as well as for our own sanctification. And so as we consider this text, I want to break it up into three main points, leading them away, seeing only trees, and then finally, seeing things clearly. And so, as we come to his word, please stand with me in the honor of the reading of his holy word. Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 22. As they came to Bethsaida, and some, some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Amen. This is God's words. You may be seated. So just for a quick context, we talk about context every week, but I think this week it's very important for us to understand what's going on here because this is a very short story and it would be really easy to just make it this really big production, but it's really not. So we have to understand what's going on around it. I think it would be really easy again to lump it in with some of the others. Particularly as we read next week, I think it really works well with next week's passage, very well with next week's passage, but really everything is kind of leading up to the passage for next week. That's why I wanted to consider it by itself. That, but more important here, this is a very, this is a strong building point for the disciples. They're continuing to deal with the issue of their own hard hearts. Think about the number of times that we've read that in the text already. Just think about all those weeks where Jesus has had to rebuke his own disciples. Are your hearts still hardened? Do you not still understand? Remember, they didn't yet understand about the loaves because their hearts were hard. Remember all those things we've heard. With every miracle, you'd think that their faith would continue to be on the rise. Like they would be at this point of just super saints by now. But in fact, they seem to remain stuck almost. It's like that sometimes. I think particularly in times of stress and change, we can seem like we're backpedaling a lot of times in our faith rather than gaining trust in our Lord. 
So this miracle, I think, is very important because it serves as a sticking point for those disciples. And I think especially as we get to next week, we're going to see that come out really brightly. So let me encourage you this week as you study, read and reread the rest of chapter 8 because I think it pairs really well with what we've had really all the way up to this point. And so that brings me to the first point, leading them away. Look with me at verses 22 and 23 again. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. So Bethsaida was a city on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been all over the Sea of Galilee, backwards and forwards on it so far. This little town was a fishing town, much like lots of the towns in the Sea of Galilee. But this one is interesting because its name literally means House of Fishing. And so they really were all about their fishing. Uh, near there, this is where Jesus fed the 5,000, not actually in the city or in the town, but near there. So this would have been a place that was familiar to Jesus, familiar to his disciples. Not only that, but all the people there would have been familiar with Jesus. And Jesus was really popular. He was always healing the sick everywhere he went. We've read that several times. We've seen that a few times in Mark. And it wasn't uncommon, even, we've already read this once, for people to bring up. To Jesus, other sick people, and have Jesus heal them. And that's what we see here. We see this group of people bringing a blind man to Jesus. Now, we don't know what their relationship to this blind man is. We're not given that in the text. It could have been the blind man's friends. They could have known about the blind man and known that Jesus was going to be there and just wanted to pair them up. I mean, all of us kind of have a reaction when we see someone who is blind or has some other infirmity. We we have this sorrow, or we should have this kind of sorrow. And so maybe they're just wanting to see this man healed and see him and see him changed. And so they bring him up to him. The text says that they begged him. They begged Jesus to touch him. Now, when we hear this word begging in our own language, we have a certain connotation, right? It almost has a negative kind of connotation like uh this constant nagging almost when when I think of the word begging. But there's so many different words for this in other languages. And so this begging really is more of an imploring. And we don't use the word implore a lot in our own language, so that's probably why they didn't choose that here for the translation. But I think it's a much better translation because it, it has this mix of begging with an encouraging kind of tone to it. So it has this an encouragement to it, almost like a comforting. It's the same word is translated as comfort in other parts of the New Testament. It's like when when someone is hurting, and you know they're hurting, and that makes you feel sad, and then there you know this person over here can do something about that hurt, and you're just kind of getting them together. There's this encouragement. You're not nagging them, but you want to see things change. And so that's what you see going on here. That's the, that's the feeling that's going on. And so Jesus hears their pleas and notice what he does. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. He led him away from the crowds and out of the village. Interesting. I've been in ministry a long time now. And one thing I've learned is the value of speaking with people one on one about their lives 
there is value in things like small groups and large group settings even, but if you really want to get to know a person, if you really want to talk to them, or really want to get to see what's going on in their lives, you can pull them aside and you'll talk to them one-on-one. That's when really important things get talked about typically. It beats all other forms of communication in getting to the heart of the matter, in getting to get people to talk about what's important to them, being able to share with them what's important to you. It's not not having to rush those conversations, not having to be bothered by other things, be having a lot of time to deal with whatever's going on with them and really talk about it. And so Jesus, as he walks with this man, you can imagine what's going on here, right? They're in this village, and it's not like it's this giant place, but still there is a place that's called not in the village anymore. And so Jesus has a goal, right? He's like, let's go out here and deal with this. And he talks to him. There is truth in the fact that Jesus didn't want to be too popular too fast. We see this all over the place. We even see that in verse 26. Don't even enter into the village. Don't go back and talk to them about what just happened. Cause I don't want this parade happening, which does eventually happen, we know. But he doesn't want it yet. But he wanted to spend time with this man. This man had probably spent lots of his days begging for food, begging for money so he could get whatever he needed. And so Jesus wanted to talk to him. We need to see this as a tender mercy of our Lord who loved the unlovely so much. And he wanted to take care of them. It stands in stark contrast to the way I can talk. I mean, I can speak for myself. It stands in stark contrast to the way that I see people so many times. I see people as a function of time a lot of times. How much time am I going to spend as opposed to how am I going to spend my time? Two different things. I want to be careful here because I don't want to make too much of this little Jesus taking this guy outside of town. But I think it is important when it comes to how we love people. I think it would be good to take a page from Jesus' book here. We need to slow down. We need to get to know folks. When it comes, Especially when it's for the sake of Christ. It's always worth doing. And next, seeing only the trees. Look with me again at 23 and 24. Read the, the second part of 23 and 24. When he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Which is an interesting thing coming from a blind man. So understand what's happening here. Jesus went to heal him. He brought him outside of the city. He brought him out so that he could talk to him. He brought him out also for the express purpose of seeing him heal. But he only healed him some. He even asked him after he touched his eyes, after he spit on his eyes. Do you see anything? As if Jesus was curious and needed to know whether or not it worked. So did that work? It's almost as if he's asking that. Now... We have to understand, and of course you know this from hearing me talk over and over again. It's not as if Jesus merely attempted to heal him and it didn't quite work. Jesus doesn't do halfway. You know, it's, it reminds me of lifting weights when you're going for like a heavy lift and you 
you, you try to get it, but you just miss it and you just almost get it right. And then you know, like, if I can just try this again, I know I'll be able to do it the next time because you know exactly what you need to do. That's not what's going on here. All right. We know that Jesus is capable of healing. We know that he's capable of raising the dead. We've seen that. He's really capable of doing, you know, whatever he wants to do. He spoke those words back all the way back in Genesis chapter one, verse three, let there be light. He spoke those words. And so he can speak to a lame, a lame man, right? Rise and walk. He said those words. He unstopped the ears of the deaf. It's not as if Jesus has tried to do something and didn't get it quite right and needs to go back to his book of tricks in order to do so. Kind of get a running start at the miracle, so to speak. Jesus is not doing that. And so then what is the point of this miracle? Why did Jesus only do it halfway this time? Well, the point of all miracles is that they are signs. What are they called? Signs and wonders. And what do signs do? They point us to something. They represent something. They are pointing us to something beyond themselves. Yes, the point of these signs are to point to the deity of Christ. No one can perform these miracles but the Son of God, but God himself They point to God's authority over his creation. The Son of Man has absolute authority over his creation because he spoke it into existence. They point to God's intervening providence. They point to the fact that, and they echo the words of the psalmist, God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. As the Son of Man walked on the earth, he did whatever he pleased to do. When it pleased him to stop the storm, he stopped the storm. So he's obviously capable of doing these things. All of that being true, I think it points to some other things as well. Remember back in Mark chapter 2, the very beginning of Mark 2, when Jesus healed the paralytic. Remember the story of Jesus being in the home, the paralytic being lowered down from the roof. And what did he say to the paralytic? He was lowered down. You see this man who can't even walk. He's lowered down. He's laying on the ground. And he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Right? We expect him to say, oh, rise and walk. We expect him to do that. And the Pharisees were like, oh, well, what kind of authority do you have to tell him his sins are forgiven? Only God has that kind of authority. And what does Jesus say? He says, to prove to you that I have the authority to forgive this man of his sins, he says to him, rise and walk. And he does. He actually says to him, take your bed and go home. There was a sign, and it pointed to the fact that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. Well, last time we were in Mark together, before this, there was a story. Remember, the disciples, they were arguing over something. There was only one loaf of bread in the boat, and they had some concerns about what they were going to eat. Right after Jesus had fed 4,000 people from just a few loaves of bread. And then what did Jesus do in order to teach them? What did he remind them of? The signs that he had done. He reminded them of the signs. And so what was the purpose of those signs, of the feeding of the thousands? The purpose was, at least in part, was to show the disciples that he planned on taking care of them. Very important. So now, coming back to our text today, 
Knowing that Jesus has the ability to completely heal this man's eyes, even the ability to just make new eyes, speak them into existence, he doesn't heal them all the way the first time. Why would he do that? We don't get to delve into the mind of Christ here, unfortunately. But we do have the context, and I think that helps us. Look at verse 21. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? And look ahead to next week, verses 28 and 29. I'm going to spoil the prize. Jesus says, But who do you say I am? Who do, who do people say that I am? Well, they say you may be John the Baptist. They say you may be Elijah. They may say you may be one of the prophets. And Jesus says, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, You are the Christ. Do you think Peter came to this realization overnight? Do you think he went from zero, the guy on the fishing boat, to a hundred, you are the Christ, all at once? We know that he didn't. In fact, he doesn't even stay at 100. If you just keep reading just a few more sentences, he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him, which is just plain crazy to rebuke the Son of Man. For Peter, for the rest of them, for us, this life of faith and belief is a journey. And it's ups and downs. And it's zeros and one hundreds. We don't wake up one morning and, find, and say, you know what, wow, I finally get this whole gospel thing. Zero to a hundred, I get it 100%, never going to go away. Because you might have that for a few minutes, but then really quickly... You're going to see something, you're going to hear something, you're going to think something, and that urge to stop believing is going to creep right back in. The almost healing of this blind man here, I think, signifies in a small way our lives of faith in Christ. We need a continual reminder that he is bringing us along, that he is still working on us. Do you not yet understand, he asked his disciples. What did he ask the blind man? Do you see anything? Jesus knows full well whether or not what he sees or doesn't see. Does this finally make sense to you, he says to us, concerning the gospel? Why do you think we talk about the gospel every week? Is it something that we can just kind of move past as Christians? You know, I've seen it. I've even heard it out of people's mouths. I really wish you'd start stop preaching the gospel to our youth because they already understand that. Maybe then I should start preaching to you because we'll never fully get it. Thankfully in Christ, I can confidently say, yes, at least I'm a little bit better than I was. That's what we get to say, this side of heaven. That is not for my diligent study. That is not because I have become better on my own, but it's because he is faithful to me. But this faith that we have and this continued work that he's in us is not yet finished. And that brings us to the next point, seeing things clearly. Look with me, verses 25 and 26. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. 
And he sent him home saying, do not even enter into the village. So here Jesus finishes what he started and he heals the man. Makes me think of the Lord of the Rings. Every time I, every time I hear about Jesus healing something, it says the hands of the king are the hands of a healer. It's this prophecy about Aragorn and the Lord of the Rings. And Jesus lays his hands and he, and he heals him. And it's just a sign that Jesus is king over his creation. He's the king of all kings. He places his hands on this man's eyes and he restores them to brand new and he sees things clearly. He went from zero to a hundred. And for the first time, and we don't know how long, we don't know how long this man's been blind, he is seen. We're left to wonder here, maybe the disciples are now seeing things a little bit clearly as well. If you're a believer here this morning, you can probably think back to those first days after your conversion when you saw things through a different lens for the first time. Or maybe you don't remember that time when you weren't a believer but and you didn't know Christ, and that's totally fine too. But you probably still have those experiences where every once in a while you think, oh, wow, I get that. That makes so much more sense now. Why hasn't it ever made sense to me before? I got glasses for the first time as a 33-year-old. Probably needed them way before that, but, you know, didn't want to go to the eye doctor. And I was amazed how clear things were all of a sudden and how much my eyes weren't having to work so hard to do things and how my headaches went away and I could just see. It was amazing. In Christ, we are given this kind of view of things. Christ, in Christ, we are given this clarity. But as you know, that clarity doesn't always stick around. The world seeps in. And what what must or what at one time was clear is now muddled. I think particularly for children who grow up in Christian homes, and that's a lot of you in here, Christian who who are growing up in, our children who are growing up in Christian homes. As a youth minister for all those years, and even now as I work in the high school and interact with Christian students a lot, I see all, every single one of them, to one level or another, come to this kind of crisis of faith where they're having to realize for the first time, oh, this is my own thing. A lot of times that happens when they have to leave home. Sometimes it happens because of something that happens at the house, whatever. And things that once they just kind of took for granted, now they're having to think about for themselves. And maybe they're not so sure. I think for the disciples here, you see these kinds of moments for the brief time that they walked with Jesus on earth. Peter sees the hall of the fish. Remember when he, when Jesus first called him, he saw the Jesus said, put your nets on the other side. And Peter lifted him up and there were so many fish they couldn't even get him in the boat. And what did Peter do when he went to Jesus? He said, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. For the first time in his life, he saw clearly who he was. But next week we're going to read that Peter thinks so much of himself that he's going to pull the Lord of creation aside and say, Jesus, I think you've got this wrong. Can you imagine that kind of shift? We have those same ebbs and flows and you know that. And it might be tempting for us in those times to think, I really just need a second touch from Jesus. This week I've listened to a few sermons under that title based on this text. And what's the premise? The first time didn't take. 
So I'm going to go back and receive a second touch. Another idea that's come, that comes from that, that is received from this kind of idea is that these, those that receive this second touch from the Lord are more spiritually enlightened. So then there are usually instructions from that pastor. If you'd like to receive a second touch and be at the same level I am, then do these kinds of things, whatever they are. It's just straight garbage. Because it usually assumes that not only did you fail, but Jesus did too. And so you both need a do-over. Perhaps a second touch will take, or the third or the fourth or whatever it might be for you. This has seeped its way into evangelicalism even, with things like, Rebaptisms, rededications, almost like painting over an ugly color in the living room, just hoping it'll cover it up so you can forget about it. I think Paul totally understands what's going on here in the book of Ephesians. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Real quick, I think this passage pairs really well with what we're talking about here. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. You can really read that whole last section of chapter 1, 15 and following, but I'm just going to read these two verses. That the God of our Lord, Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you wisdom, or may give you the spirit of wisdom. This is a prayer that Paul is praying for the people of Ephesus. That he would give you the spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And he goes on there in this great prayer for the saints in Ephesus, and that's just it. This is a prayer for the saints in Ephesus, not the unbelievers in Ephesus, for those who are Christians. What is he praying? That you would, the eyes of your heart would be opened, that you would see what is the hope that you have been called for. Is it not that we don't already know that as Christians? Yes, we do know that, but what needs to happen even more? Even more, our eyes need to be opened. That we would see this more and more. I think Christians understand this. Though we have these momentary glimpses of glory. For the most part we struggle to see things clearly on our best days. Even in Christ. That doesn't mean that we're less of a Christian. And this is important for us. And you need to hear this. Though on those days you are not less of a Christian than the Christians who are getting it on that day. We don't need a second touch from Jesus to become a better Christian. When Jesus saved us, he did it right the first time completely and once and for all. On our worst days, we don't become less of a Christian. We don't have less of Christ. And on our best, we don't have more of him. That's not how it works. The weakest Christian has the exact same Christ as the strongest Christian. Facts. Remember the gospel. Jesus died for you even while you were yet his enemy, even when you were yet sinners. He didn't die for you when you got to a certain level of sin. Even while you were yet his enemy, he died for you. He took your sin, all of it, and gave you his righteousness, all of it. 
His righteousness has an eternal shelf life to it. It doesn't start getting weaker. You don't need to go back to Him and get another spoonful of it. Though we may be weak in Him, sometimes weaker, sometimes at our weakest, He is always the same strong. And the facts are, we're going to have those strong days. We're going to have those weak days. But Christ only ever has strong days. And it's in Him that we find our strength. He is always applying more coats to us, brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's not because those previous coats were ineffective. Not at all. But it's because with each coat, we become more and more like Him. That's how He does. That's how He chooses to work in us. It is a work that He is doing in us. We have not fully arrived, nor will we, until we are with Him in glory. The Shorter Catechism says it perfectly. When it talks about sanctification, it says sanctification is the work of Christ that enables us more and more to die to sin and to live like Him. Hopefully you feel that as a Christian. Me at 42 is a lot different than me at 32, thankfully. And a whole lot different than me at 22. That dude was horrible. And so I can look back and say that. But me at 22, guess what? I was a believer. I was growing in Christ. So it's not that I didn't have Him. It's just that now I understand more. And so understand that in our lives. It's something that is always happening. Thanks be to God, He is doing it even in spite of ourselves. And so in conclusion, let us pray for one another these words of Paul. That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and that we'd know more and more the riches of his glorious inheritance that we have in Christ. Let us pray that for each other. And let us pray that too, brothers and sisters in Christ, for the lost world. That they would know that their eyes would be opened as well. That they would call upon the name of Jesus and that they would be saved. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would just continue your work in us. That we need those daily reminders from you, those daily touches, those daily reminders that you are not finished, that you are still working on us, that even on our worst days, we still have the same Christ. And thanks be to God that that is true. We are thankful, Lord. Help us to understand that more and more, that we would glorify your name in all the earth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.